The shofar on Rosh Hashanah, which is the central mitzvah of the day, resonates in three distinct ways within the Jewish tradition. The shofar is blown in the Bible in times of trouble as a warning. The shofar is also an instrument of joy. Along with trumpets, a sound of joyful celebration of God as sovereign. To these we can add another more complicated significance. The shofar, often a ram's horn, but not always, recalls the ram that was offered on the altar in place of Isaac in Genesis 22. The invocation of the binding of Isaac, perhaps the most challenging episode in our Torah, demands explanation. Why is it significant for us to recall this event on Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment of the world? What layer of religious meaning does it add to the wider import of the day? Does this story echo in our souls in a way which makes its inclusion in the experience of Rosh Hashanah intuitive? These are important questions that we're going to hold in our minds as we delve into a poetic tapestry of biblical and rabbinic traditions known as Et Sha'are Ratzon, Gates of Favor. This poem is read in my Sephardic congregation and in other Sephardic communities before the shofar is sounded on Rosh Hashanah. While our session today will not provide definitive answers to the questions I just posed, they are the foundation for our exploration of the poem's view of the Akedah and its significance for Rosh Hashanah. So after appreciating the poem and exploring its own religious outlook, we can return to our own perspectives on these questions to decide if the poem's view aligns with our own or if it provides an alternative view of the experience of Rosh Hashanah. Our poem that we're going to learn today together, Gates of Favor, was composed by Rabbi Huda Ben Shmuel Ibn Abbas. His Arabic name was Abu al-Baka Yahya. And I will begin our exploration with a biographical sketch of the man, which is drawn from the writing of his son, Shmuel. Shmuel writes that he was born in Fez and was extremely knowledgeable in Torah and skillful in metered Hebrew prose and poetry. He married his wife in Baghdad, though she was originally from Basra, I'll pause here to remind ourselves that places that we hear about in the news, like Basra, Baghdad, and I'll mention some more, have had vibrant, incredibly important, long-standing Jewish communities. And this is an example of a person and a family that came from there. Um, This man's wife from Basra and her sisters knew how to study Torah and could write Hebrew. So he married a learned woman. Says a lot for him, right? Uh, He gave his son Shmuel a deep Jewish education, but also a wide general education. However, Shmuel converted to Islam after he had a vision of the Prophet Muhammad when he was in Azerbaijan in 1163. For four years, his son Shmuel hid his conversion from his father, Rabbi Yehuda. But finally, he sent him a letter to his father in Aleppo, trying to explain the events that led him to convert. Yehuda Ibn Abbas, the poet, traveled to Mosul, in order to meet his son, but he died suddenly before he was able to speak to him. And it's thought that he died in around 1167. To gain an impression of the poem in its liturgical context, we're going to begin by listening to an excerpt of its performance in our Spanish and Portuguese minhag. And actually what you're going to hear is our chazan and the current choir that we have. So if you like what you hear and you're not um, also coming to Drisha or you want to pop in, we're not too far, um, this is what something you'll hear. The clip is about a minute and a half. What I'm going to do, just um, queued up in just a minute, I'm going to give you a copy of the poem so that you can take a look at it 
just kind of overlook it as we're listening. Look it over. was a Baal Tefillah and also read Torah because I, I hope that he would have enjoyed that and, and what we're going to do. So I'm going to be giving you now just to take a brief look at, before we look at an interpretation of the Akedah, we have to remind ourselves exactly, briefly, but exactly, how the Bible told this very story. So I'm handing you copies of... Genesis 22. So put aside your poem for just a moment. Take a look. Yeah. Okay. What I'd like you to... Yes? Yes? Oh, it's coming home. Who knew it was such a wonderful shidduch? Okay. Well, that's terrific. So what I'd like you to do in just a few minutes... Um, is um, look to a person next to you, or read it on your own, remind yourself of what is in Genesis 22, and perhaps especially how the story is told, what's there and what isn't. If you'd like to turn to the person next to you and 
share some of your thoughts, that would be nice. You're going to have like two, three minutes, so it's a quick looking over, and then we'll come back. Sorry, I'm sorry to um, disrupt you. When exactly do we begin so I know that we can end um, properly? Okay, great. I can see it, so it should be fine. Fantastic. Anyone who's talking doesn't have to whisper. You should, you know, you can talk. This is a bet midrash. It knows how to hear people. And as you're doing that, I'm going to give you the final handout. Don't worry, there's not going to be any more showering of paper. This is, you're going to hold on to this for what I'm going to do next. I'll take one of these. Here. Just going to leave. Yes, you want to help? Great. You can do that side. I'm going to give you a few of these midrashim to hold on to for the next part. Okay, I'm going to give you a few of these, this midrash pack. Excuse me, Mo. These? Not head on. That's a really important question. You mean like the angel at the end? Yeah, that's an important question for the entire Bible, though, isn't it? I agree. How God commu- communicated with people. Um, he, uh, he has several, so he's going to pass me one. Sorry. Okay. Obviously, friends, it's hard to read this story quickly, but I asked you to anyway. The story brings up for us religious and human issues which we should spend years working through. How can it be that a God whom we worship would put Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac through such suffering as a test? Why does God or these people need a test? These are issues which we will not answer head-on today, but it might be somewhat comforting to remind ourselves that Jews and Christians, theologians, philosophers, and people like us have struggled with these and other questions for millennia. Instead, we're going to focus on the significance of this story for our poet and how we feel about this poet's interpretation of this event for our Rosh Hashanah experience. I handed out some midrashim, which you're going to use for later reference. Now, since Rabbi uh, Dr. David DeSolopoul's translation of the Hebrew is um, poetic and very beautiful, but not in exactly literal at every moment, I'm going to translate this for the group, and then we're going to go through the composition as, we, as, we, as I translate. 
Um, I'd like you to look for and comment on places where the poet's account diverges from the biblical account that you just read. And you should also feel free to ask for questions of clarification as we go. So I'm going to start looking now back at the poem, which you can, um, which I gave to you. Did I give to you yes. at the beginning? Okay. So et sha'are ratzon lehipateach yom ehiyekapai leel shoteach. Ana zachorna ki beyom hocheach oked behane ekad behamizbeach. The way I just did that would not have been proper. Just to let, we should all remind ourselves that there's a very particular metered um, way of reading this, which I'm not doing, but it is good. So this means, this is the time of gates of favor to open. The time that I will have my hands outstretched to God. And I say, implied, remember please, the day of Hocheach, the day of Tochacha, this re- on, on this rebuking day, which is Rosh Hashanah, the Oked Behaneekad Behamizbeach, the one who bound and the one who is bound and the altar. So this is a four-line introduction by the speaker. The rest of the stanzas have six lines, and we haven't begun the story yet. Stanza two begins the story. Ba'acharit nusa besof ha'asara. Does anybody, oh, I guess I should translate it first. At the end of having been tried, at the end of ten, what is that uh, referring to? Good. So we know that in um, Pirkei Avot, in uh, chapter 3, 5, it is said that Abraham had ten tests. So this is the, the, the tenth test. And this is a way that the entire poem will go. He's going to be weaving in and out the biblical text, and our, our Midrashic and Mishnaic traditions with it. I'll point out, I'll read the whole thing and point out the rhyming. Haben asher nolad lecha misara, im nafshecha bo ad meod nikshara, kum ha'alehu li leola vara, al har asher kavod lecha zoreach, okel v'hanekad v'hamizbeach. Notice the first four lines of the poem are rhymed to one, uh, ra, one syllable, and then the last two are each. In medieval Hebrew, it's the entire syllable that has to rhyme. So this is perfect rhyming. Now, the fact that the last couplet always, and through the entire poem, is going to rhyme with mizbeach has a particular effect. What do you think that effect is? It emphasizes it. Rhyme is an important way of, of, of choosing emphasis. And so the fact that the last couplet of every stanza rhymes with Mizbeach remembers, reminds us every time how important the altar is. Interestingly, there are then three characters in the Akedah so far, at least in the um, last line. There's Abraham, Isaac, and the altar becomes a character in itself, which has, pre- which has other echoes in Jewish poetry or Hebrew poetry. For example, Chaim Guri, who's a... 20th century Israeli poet wrote a poem about the Akedah in which the knife became in some ways its own character. What do you do? Yes. Yes, we're going to come to that. So I'm now going to absolutely write. This is one of the most surprising and interesting things about this poem. So it says, the son that Sarah bore to you, which your soul is so um, connected with, arise and bring him as a burnt 
uh, fresh, pure offering on the mountain that I, that uh, glory will shine for you. So interestingly, Sarah is introduced right off the bat. We now go to the third stanza. Amar le Sarah, ki chamudech Yitzchak gadal velo lamad avodat shachak. Abraham says to Sarah, your beloved one, Isaac, has grown, but has not learned the service of shachak. What is that? Does anyone know what that is? Shechakim? Right, of the, of the high one. Elech be'orehu asher lo elchak. I will go and show him what God has legislated to him. Amra, she said, lecha adon, abal al tirchak. Ana, yehi libech be'el boteach. She says, go, my Lord, but don't go too far. And then he says back to her, trust in God. The binder and the bound and the altar. Very poignant. The first thing to just point out is where, uh, just one moment, the poet got this idea, this excuse of why Abraham was taking Isaac. Does anyone know, are you familiar with where it comes from perhaps? It's okay if you're not. If you look at your Midrash sheet, there's actually a Midrash that is in Tanchuma, but it's also earlier. I'll say that many of the Midrashim I brought are later Midrashim and that many of them have much earlier roots. But there is such a Midrash that Abraham knew God at three. And therefore, he wanted to show Isaac what God was and what the service of God was. And that was the story that he told to Sarah. This is very poignant because it brings to, to us this very important question about the Akedah. This is teaching Isaac about God? He doesn't know God yet and you want him to see this? If this is God's Torah? Another interesting aspect is this ominous trust in God that he says back to Sarah, which makes us perhaps hear a tone or a background to the conversation that we wouldn't otherwise know about. Is she worried? What does she know? What does that mean when she said, don't go too far away? There's a lot of background that this poet is trying to give to us. Potential that there's unsaid communication between Abraham and Sarah, that they are sharing this burden. And she puts up some sort of protest, but not a real serious one. And all he says is trust in God. And maybe he's saying it to himself as well. We're on to the next stanza. Does anyone have any questions? Oh, yes, you had a question. Okay, the idea of the devil doesn't... Well, what I was going to say is the, the idea of the devil doesn't, isn't in all layers of Hebrew literature. So the fact that there is, for example, an angel or some sort of emissary of God called Satan doesn't, doesn't necessarily, for example, reflect that we have the same idea as Satan as some Christians have had at different periods. I think that the, a good... A good exploration of Jewish ideas of evil or personification of evil or of the devil would probably be for another time. But there is the word Satan, but I don't think that it would bring up the same idea of Satan as Christians have. Yes? Yeah. 
not familiar enough with the Midrashim about um, Abraham having a yeshiva. However, I think that you're pointing to something really important about Midrash in general, which is there is not a one all-inclusive and agreeing tradition that each, each one is a piece of, but rather where it is teaching an important message, it'll teach it, depending on whatever details it chooses to bring in, and they sometimes conflict. It's a good point. Uh, oh, wow. Yes, and then... Yes. That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, okay. It says he has grown. So it's not completely clear. He could be older than Abraham was meant to have been according to the Midrash when he recognized God. But it doesn't say exactly how much older. It says he's Gadal. He, you know, he's older. So it's unclear. And I will say that later in the poem, another Midrash comes up which might fight with that. So I, I want to bring this back up again with another Midrash later because they would sort of conflict. Yes. Yes. Oh, how interesting. Um, you could certainly think it that way. I guess what it, what it meant to me when I read it was it really emphasizes the connection and the pain, the connection that Sarah had with Isaac and the pain that this would be. Yeah, that, that's a, a very, um, very possible reading. It could also be... Right. It definitely could be emphasizing that she loves him more, but it could also be a recognition or um, it could reflect a close relationship between Abraham and Sarah that he knows how important Isaac is to Sarah and he's recognizing her connection. Um, okay, we're looking at the fourth sti- Mom, sorry. <laughs> Oh, nice. You're right. Yeah, the third line of the previous stanza, with your, um, the child who was born to, born to Sarah, um, who your soul is so connected with. So already, I think that that's actually a good connection, because already God is involving both Sarah and Abraham with Isaac, and then Abraham kind of turns to Sarah and says, your, your delight, your, your cherished one. Okay. Shachar v'hishkim lahaloch baboker. Ushnei na'arav mimte ha-sheker. Yom ha-shlishi na'agu'u el-cheker. Bayar demut kavod v'hod v'yeker. Amad v'hitbonan l'himasheach. Oked v'hane'ekal v'hamizbeach. So, in the morning, he rose up to go. In the morning. Shachar um, and baboker. And his two uh, servants or slaves from those of the lies. Not, not a particularly nice view of um, non-Abraham people, not of Abraham's family people. I don't want to say like non-Jews, but that's probably what's going on here. So there were no Jews at the time. So what is that referring to in uh, the biblical text? It's like, yeah, it's like a direct, a direct quote from like the third verse. Vayashkem Avraham Baboker, etc. And he took his two servants or slaves with him. Um, the slight? Oh, absolutely. We're going to get there. Absolutely. The, the slight to the, non, the non-Abraham people. Yes. Right. Um, on the third day, Nag'u el Cheker. This is like Higiu. They arrived to the place that they had desired, and they saw, and he saw, I should say, an image of uh, glory and, um, and honor and fineness. And he stood and contemplated 
Lehimasheach. Do you know what that means? Good, to be anointed, right. It can also be to therefore to be appointed for high office. So what, which what seems to be going on here is he's doing some sort of internal personal readiness for some great calling, which would eventually be this task that he's on. So let's go to, um, Gabe, your comment is going to come up more in the, in the next stanza. Yadun arav kikra'am lemor, or har'item tzat berosh har hamor. He knew his servants because he said to them, Have you seen the light that is twinkling at the top of the mountain of myrrh? And they said, No, we see only ravines, or a ravine. Ana, shavufo am meshulim lachamor. He says, Please, stay here, the people who are compared to a donkey. And I and the young, young, young boy will uh, go forward, to spread out, to go on forwards. So this is, um, the, the hill of Mur, Har Hamor, is because he's doing a clever rhyming thing. Har Hamor, this, this wonderful exalted mountain, which is not mentioned in the text, but the difference between Har Hamor and Mahamor is very um, distinct because they sound the same, but they mean such different things. So one is a high thing with a beautiful smell, and one is a ravine. Mahamora is a very rare uh, word for a pit. And here is again the Midrash. If you look at your Midrash pages, um, which I can look at with you, yes, you'll see in... Um, Actually, the second and the third Midrashim are important. The idea that he is seeing something on the mountain, and that is how he knew which mountain it was. Because it says he saw the place from a distance. The rabbi said, well, what did he see? He must have seen something. He saw a twinkling light, or he saw a cloud in particular. And the fact that his na'arav, his servants, did not see anything, this is taken in, in the rabbinic interpretation to be a, the reason that he chose to not have them go on. There's some major difference between his servants and what he and Isaac are called for. Um, when I, Abraham says, stay here with the donkey, the rabbis really seize on that and say, because you're like donkeys. So this is not a great moment in terms of uh, Jewish attitudes to the other, but this is what it is. Lottie. If you, if you chose to build a midrash around that, it could be that. But I think that when it says, Am Mishulim Lachamor, it's being derogatory. And that's like, that is what it is. Let's, let's call it what it is and accept that that is part of our history and the traditions, and, um, and we don't have to agree with it. But it is what's represented. Yes, in the midrash. Isn't that interesting? Right. Right. So I think that what's important is, um, yeah, this is a particularly harsh thing to say because I, I think it's a really, what's your name? What's, what was your name? Yes. Avinoam. Avinoam made a really important point here that he, the, this particular Midrash identifies these two servants with people that we know. Eliezer and Ishmael, it's a pretty common thing to do, but people who we know to have important characters. So to call them, and it does, you're like a donkey, 
it's a pretty strong thing to say. So look, I don't want to dwell much more on this because it's not something that makes me feel good, but I think we should say what it is. All right, going on. The sixth stanza. They walked together to do the service, and Isaac says to his father the following, My father, see the, the fire and the wood to spread out on the altar? Where, my lord, is the sheep that is according to the halacha, which is a wonderful anachronism. Um, or meaning, it's, it's what the practice would be. Halacha is what the practice would be. Um, are you forgetting your religious instruction today? Again, an amazing moment of poignancy. Is Abraham forgetting the halacha? Is Abraham forgetting what godly service is? We wonder, don't we, in this time? He wonders, is this what godly service is? Except that God has insisted on it. So it's a moment of real focusing in on the difficulty of this story. And his father. And notice that there's a lot of my father, his father, relational um, epithets, which are also in the biblical story, which really emphasize the pain and the broken, the, the broken bonds and the, and the incredible pain of all of this. His father answered, By God, the, the living God of shelter, who shelters, which I guess may be a hope, it is he who will see to the, uh, the, the sheep sacrifice. Know that anything that God wills, he will do. We, together, my son, today will build before him a throne. And then the sacrifice and the one who is sacrificing will be glorified or raised. Here the altar is called a kiseh, a throne before God elevating God on the back of this action, which kind of is hard to say even, because it's so hard to have the, the potential sacrifice of a child be what is elevating God and what God is so exalted upon. But I think that we see very clearly the poet puts in Abraham's feeling it's, a, it's a, a very easy interpretation in some ways of God will, when, it's, when the Bible says God will see to the seh, beni, that there's like then a hope. God will make this okay. And here it's made more explicit by the poet. Anything that God wants and that God wills will be done. And here what God is willing is that Abraham is doing this thing, but what we hope is that God's will will change and it won't be that he actually has to go through with it or that it's not fully revealed. Gabe? Nice. This, this happens all through the poem. Yes, there's an inconsistency between the, the, the story that's told to Sarah and what's happening here. Does Sarah know that, or is Sarah playing along and she knows more? So I think there's a lot of good answers. The way I read this, and this is less interesting, perhaps, an answer, is that just like Midrash can be different on every piece, in some ways the poem is different on every piece. But you could do a lot with a more interesting constructed narrative the way you're going. Oh, there's a hand and then another. Yep. Yes. 
Yes. So you're saying that, right, right. So your feeling is that he didn't know any any of the men's traditions or not. Thank you. Alex? Interesting that um, the sermon on the back of what Gabe said, um, the first address you gave us, um, Abraham references the fact that he recognizes Rachel at three years old. Mm. Right. 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 It's already kind of a leaky boat story. Yeah, exactly. Nice. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, uh, yes, and then okay. That's how you read. Thank you. But but for for Abu Dat Shachak to mean um, an approach to religious living is uh, a, a, apparently a, you you would call a primary meaning of what he said to Sarah, or kind of an underlying one that's well, to us. Yeah, I think that. Thank you. Yeah, I'll be known. That's right. That's right. Right. Which is similar to Gabe's question. So I, my, my feeling about it is each part of the poem may be comfortable with different midrashim that they're referencing, but it also could be that what Sarah was told was not a good story and that we're meant to think about that as well. I'm going to push on just so that we can see more of the poem. Um, good, okay. Forgetting what God's service was. All right. Dafku. Okay, so we're at the eighth, the eighth um, stanza. Dafku b'sha'arei rachamim liftoach haben lehizab. Did I skip something? No. Lehizabach ve'av lizboach kovim la'el uvurachamav liftoach ve'kovei Hashem yachlifu koach darshu benachlat el lehistapeach oked v'haneekad v'hamizbeach. They are pounding on the gates of mercy or love to open. 
That reminds us of the very beginning of this poem, Et Sha'are Ratzon Lehipateach. Now, Rosh Hashanah is a time that we want the gates of God's favor to open. So here, there's a reference to the very beginning of the poem and to the whole Rosh Hashanah context of this story when he talks about other gates, this one's of rachamim, of mercy that he wants to, to open. The son to be sacrificed and the father to sacrifice, both of which need mercy. Not just the, the child who's gonna, or the young Yitzchak who's going to lose a life, but the father who has to do this. They both hope to God and are relying on God's mercy. The Kovei, and then we're, we're, we're um, quoting scripture, those who um, trust in God will have renewed strength. So in some ways, you know, assuring ourselves that that kind of thing will happen. Darshu lehistapeach. So lehistapeach is to be connected to or attached to. So they um, sought the, the lot of God to be connected to it. That's what they're doing here at this moment. Hechin atse ola be'on v'chayel, v'yakod yitzchak ko'okdo ayel, v'yihi ma'or yomam be'inam layel, my favorite part, v'hamon d'ma'av nozlim b'chayel, ayin b'mar bocha v'lev sameach, oked v'hanekad v'hamizbeach. He, we're assuming Abraham, uh, because it says so in the, in the Bible, uh, prepared the sticks for the sacrifice with on, with potency, with strength, and with another word for strength. Though interestingly, chayel also means fear and awe, as well as power. By he, and it was that the light of day was in their eyes night. It's just beyond terrible. Why? Because so many of their tears were flowing with strength that their eyes were darkened. Uh, the eyes were, were bitterly crying, but the heart was happy. Hmm. Okay. Um, which is part of another bunch of Midrashic traditions, that they went happily, that they were both willing and knowing. But I think that the poet spends much more time on the pain of this, which I really appreciate. Much more figurative language on the crying and on the sadness. Okay. And we should say regarding the eyes being darkened with tears, there's much earlier um, in like uh, Qumran and I think in Jubilees, but certainly in earlier Midrashim, there's references to angels crying that blinded Isaac, which may also be being uh, um, referred to here. Sihula'imi ki sesona pana. Tell my mother, Isaac says, that her delight has passed. Haben tishim shana hayala'esh ulma'achelet mana. The son who was born to her at 90 years was um, uh, destined or appointed to the knife and the fire. Anna avakeshla menachem, Anna. Please, I'm looking for a comforter for her. Please. Sar lila'em, peach. It tears me up that the mother will cry and will sob. Oked vahane ekad vahamizbeach. Isaac becomes the... Yes, you were going to say? I wondered about that. Yes, there's a... There's, um, right. There's a, it's an Isaiah. Help me out here. I'm not so great at my Bible. Yirmiyahu. Thank you. Yirmiyahu refers to uh, Rachel who's crying about 
um, her children and about exile. Um, that, that might be. I, I, with, the, with the actual, you know, with the action in the poem, what I love is that Sarah's pain is put in the mouth of Isaac because she's not physically there. So someone has to say it, and it becomes her son, her, her delight. Psiktai um, Rabati, which I have here, and, and other, other Midrashim as well, also emphasize Sarah's pain. And Tanhuma and other Midrashim have Sarah dying of fright to know what happened. So we have these traditions that bring Sarah into the picture, and here it becomes what Isaac says to Abraham, to his, to the, about, you know, so he's, he's interfering or talking about the husband-wife relationship. You need to comfort your wife because she is about to lose her son, and it kills me how much she's going to be sad. And really the poet, I think, felt this pain of the loss of a, of a child. He imagined pain. Um, we don't know when he wrote this regarding the conversion of his son, so I don't know if we can really read that here. But he felt it very strongly, and he really put Sarah into the, into the picture. Mima'achelet yehemeh midbari. Na chadada avi ve'et ma'asari chazek. I'm not really reading it well, but I'm reading it like the meaning. Ve'et yekad yekod bivsari, kach imcha hanish'ar ma'afari, ve'amor lesara, ze yitzchak re'ach, oked v'hane'ekad v'hamizbeach. My words shudder because of the knife. Please make it sharp, my father, and also my bounds make tight, because the time of the flame, when it burns my flesh, and oh, at the time when the flames burn my flesh, take with you what is left of my ashes and tell to Sarah, this is the, the, the savor, the remnant, the reach, um, the, the smell, the savor of Isaac. Bind well may be found as early as in some of the, in a, in a Qumran fragment, but it's hard to know, but certainly in Jubilees and in, um, in a Midrashim that Isaac asked to be bound, and you'll see it in the Midrashim I gave you, so that he would not invalidate the offering in some way. Here, what's nice is that it's not about invalidating, actually, no, it's not. It's not about invalidating the offering, because if it, if it nicks him, he's not a perfect animal to be sacrificed. It's because he's scared. He just, it's going to be terrible, and he wants it to be quick and over. A very human read on this. Um, and a human take on the Midrashim that make it more about, I don't want my sacrifice to be some way blemished. There was a question. Yeah, that's a really great question. <sighs> right. Mm. Right, I'm just going to re- repeat that in case people couldn't hear. So Suri said that reach reminds her of reach nichoach, which is the pleasing odor of sacrifices. And perhaps um, Isaac was thinking that on some level, because she's a person of great devotion, she would find some, some comfort or some satisfaction in it potentially. Um, is that about right? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for us to say it, right? But it's yes. Yeah. yeah, I think you know she wants to be in that kind of circle, but you know he died, but he died for a purpose. He died as a as a corpse, and this way of control. Right. Yes, and actually that's really important. We're going to come back to the death not being futile. I think that's a really important um, point. Okay. 
So, and again, I just want to point out that Sarah is brought back into this. She's like, she's never not present. At, at every moment, he, he is referring to her. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. I'll point out that the, the potential textual irritant that might have prompted it is that Isaac went blind, and it's known that he went blind because of the narrative. So they might be connecting with that. But your question still stands. Why construct it that way? Why is it that Isaac needs to be blind in this situation? Can he not bear to look because it's so awful? Is he, is, as you say, what is this physical manifestation of the pain of it that Abraham didn't have? I don't have good answers for you, but I really like the question. Is it very clear that this is the day that I can come No, I mean, according to the biblical story, it's when he's old. But I'm saying that I, I, I think that, I, I would think of reading that Midrash, that it is, it is thinking about the, the blindness that Isaac eventually has, which has narrative import. Yeah. This is really fascinating, and I, I, yeah, very possibly. I, I'm really taken with this whole discussion, actually, which I haven't really thought about. Um, so, thank you. Good question and good answer. Um, okay. Okay. Yehamu v'kol malachei merkava ofan v'saraf sho'alim bindava. Mitchananim la'el ba'ad sar tzava anatna pidyom v'kofer hava. Al na yehi um, the angels of the firmament are mur- murmuring or there's a hubbub Ofan is taken as a, an angel it means a wheel and it's a reference from Ezekiel 10 um, and Saraf, another angel are asking Bindava I would read this as they're, they're asking like um, pleading almost um, but it could also be about this voluntary offering that Abraham is offering, and I'm not exactly, I'm not exactly sure how I'd come down on that. Um, they are pleading to God for sartsava. What is sartsava? You might know from like Israeliness. The, the head of the army. Well, that's Isaac, head of the army. He's known in other, in other rabbinic literature for being strong, givurah, associated with strength, that maybe that's what's going on, or maybe it just rhymes really well, which it does. Um, please, the angels say, give redemption and a, a cover or substitute. Give. Don't let the world be without a moon. So who's the moon and why is he the moon? So he, Isaac, right? And he, because I guess presumably Abraham is the sun and Isaac is the moon. It doesn't really leave very much for Yaakov. So his son had the stars, so maybe. But it's nice. It's like the second light of the world. Okay. Now, the, the angels getting worried, again, is very well, um, very well found in very early uh, Hebrew sources and Midrashic sources. Amar Abraham Adon Shamaim al yad el shlish uraim shuvu machanaim yom yushalayim bo rachamim ani poteach oker 
Adon Shemaim, the Lord of Heaven, unclear who. Now, in the biblical text, oh, sorry, calls to Abraham. Who calls to Abraham in our biblical text? Great. Now, this could also be um, Malach. And as I gave to you in your Midrashic material, it's uh, called Michael and one of Michael and one of them. But I think there's some nice ambiguity about this being God versus um, an angel. I'm not really sure why the poet wants it to be that way. Um, it makes more symmetry from the beginning and the end, but as we know, that's one of the really interesting things about this biblical story is that God starts it and an angel finishes it. But I just wanted to point it out. It's kind of ambiguous who's calling. Don't uh, stretch out your hand against the, the one-third of the lights, referring back to the previous image. And then, I guess, turning to the angels, go in peace, angels of Machanaim. Um, this day will be a merit to the children of Jerusalem. On it, the gates of mercy or love I will open. The, bound and, the binder and the bound and the altar. So we remember that earlier, um, when the, the Akedah is really about to start, there's a reference to, we hope that these gates of mercy will open. And I said that this reminds us of the gates of Ratzon, of will at the very beginning. So what God says is, everybody calm down, go in peace. This day is going to be a day of great merit to the Jews, and I will open gates of mercy. Okay, and this is the final uh, stanza. And here again, we go back out of the story. Remember, we had the first stanza, which wasn't in the story. It was an introduction. Here we have an ending where we, the speaker, turns to God. Remember your covenant, dweller of Zavul, which is one of the heavens in rabbinic thought. Um, remember your covenant and your oath um, to the uh, assembly Soora Ungua, um, which means like kind of storm tossed or agitated and then afflicted, Nega. Um, and then it says, Ushma Tikia Tok'a Utrua. Tikia Tok'a Utrua. Interesting. And here the sounds of the shofar. And say to Zion, the time has come for redemption. I am sending Yinon, which is, according to Chazal, one of the personal names of the Messiah, which is drawn from interpretation in Psalms of a word that only occurs there, Yinon. Um, and I'm also sending Eliyah, because Malachi says um, Eliyah will come first. The, bound, uh, the binder and the bound and the altar. Any, before I con- give some concluding thoughts on the, this interpretation, the experience, I'd like to take any further questions on this. Yes, and then yes, and then yes. I don't know. Does anybody know? Is there a tradition about that? Is there a tradition about what day of the year the Akedah happened on? I'm not familiar. I don't know. The Midrash associates it with that, that hill with where the temple ended up, but it also associates another hill with that. So it's important to associate it with the temple because of the importance of the Akedah, but there's a lot, there are conflicting rabbinic views on that. Gabe? Okay. 
I'm taken with that because the Chaim Guri poem I talked about, which says at the end where the knife becomes the very important part of the whole thing, and it says that the knife was bequeathed to the people of Israel. They had a knife in their hearts because of the experience of the Akedah. I'm taken with the idea that the Mizbeach could be in our hearts, the way Guri saw that, that somehow the, the Mizbeach stands for Jacob or all of us because this has somehow so much permeated us. I don't know, but I, I, I'm fascinated by that. Uh, there was a question behind it first, yeah. Ah, nice. That's a really important point. Thank you. Absolutely. And then final comment, then I'm going to finish. Okay, so that would be a good place to look. Right, but that, that's with reference, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, that's a, that's a relative reference. It, it means that these things are connected to those things, but not that there was a particular calendrical moment. But I don't know. Again, if there, if there was... I'm happy to be educated about that. All right. So I want to return, as I'm finishing, to the fact that the Akedah is read on Rosh Hashanah, and in our minhag, and in your minhag, revisited through this poem directly before blowing the shofar, which emphasizes the Akedah as the preeminent significance of the shofar blowing, despite the other significances I mentioned at the beginning. So what reasons does this poem offer for pushing the Akedah into the foreground at this moment on Rosh Hashanah? Now we, note, we noted how the mention of the gates of mercy, Sha'ar Rachamim, are invoked at the moment that Abraham ties Isaac to the altar and his eyes are darkened with tears. During the pain, during the tears, during the overcoming of will, that's when the gates of mercy are, are pleaded with. We commented that these gates are called the gates of the first stanza of the poem, gates of favor, which represent the opening, the chance, the possibility of redemption that we seek on Rosh Hashanah. This poem makes the religious message of the Akedah, then, an approach to suffering, in a way. Please, let this suffering have meaning. Let Abraham and Isaac and Sarah's suffering have meaning, and let our own. This is a common desire and a hope that what we endure has worth or meaning, and that it was not, in addition to being so painful, also empty. The story in the Bible ends with an exchange, a ram for Isaac, and the poem asks for an exchange as well. Let Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac's suffering, the breaking of bonds, the breaking of trust, the overcoming of will and desire, the secrets, and the acts that should be asked of no one, let us exchange this for something redeeming, let this suffering and this ordeal be meaningful to us through an exchange. Take our ancestors' darkest hour and pay it forward. Let it stand for us in our judgment time. Let it be meaningful. At the time of Sha'arei Ratzon, the gates of favor, we recall these Sha'ar Rachamim, these gates of mercy, and we ask for them to be exchanged and for them to stand together. Now, some questions then for some of us will remain. Should we capitalize on an event whose ethics seem blurry? Do we want this story, as we understand it, to stand for us on Rosh Hashanah? And we can't answer these questions here right now. But 
the exploration and appreciation of Ibn Abbas's grand retelling offers us one way to understand the invocation of the Akedah on Rosh Hashanah. It expresses a hope to see good times after difficulty and for better for the succeeding generations than what we have encountered. This sentiment, I believe, resonates with each of us. And it's a perspective from the Spanish and Portuguese minhag, which is why I called it a Sephardic cadence, that I hope you can incorporate into your Rosh Hashanah experience this year wherever you find yourself. <laughs>